And you can be seated. Good morning. It is so great to have you guys here. My name is Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. want to welcome everybody watching in venue too and online. So I want to show you something. The other day, Adrian, who you heard earlier, uh, showed me a great video that's sort of gone viral. It appears that a grandmother, an elderly woman, is about to go on her first plane trip. She's never been on an airplane before. And this is off in Europe somewhere, in Denmark. And so her daughter decides, uh, in order to get you prepared for your first plane trip, I'm going to take you on your first roller coaster ride ever. <laughs> and here's what happened. Watch the screen. Meet Grandma Rhea. She'd never traveled on an airplane before. So before her first ever flight, to beat her fear, she took to the sky on a roller coaster. That beginning with the yellow. <laughs> adopt this woman as your grandmother right now, right? Is there a grandma adoption program? You know what I love about her facial expressions? That is just pure joy, isn't it? Just pure, unadulterated joy in life. And all of us really want to live life like that, don't we? With that, that sense of joy. And, and sometimes we do experience it, joy in life, especially joy in Christ, joy in what God has given to us. But the problem we find with joy is that joy leaks. And sometimes you find that, that incrementally your, your, your joy in life has, has just vanished. And that was the case with the people to whom the letter we are, written is, is, what we are studying is written. Paul says, we saw this last week, Paul says to the Galatians, what has happened to all your joy? The Galatians used to have joy. They used to live life like that grandma, but now they were somber and serious and strict religious people. And so Paul writes them this letter that we began studying last weekend. And if you ever feel like, I'm losing my joy, or I'm exhausted by life, or I'm haunted by guilt, then the book of Galatians in the Bible was really written for you. Because Galatians is all about being free. Free from guilt. Free from fear. Free from that nagging feeling of always trying and never quite measuring up. Last weekend, we started uh, this series, and we saw that Paul had started the churches in this area of Galatia. It's central Turkey today. Then it was called Galatia. It was a province of the Roman Empire. He started these churches, then he took off, and some false teachers almost immediately came in and started teaching the Galatians. Sure, what Paul said was, was fine, I guess. Uh, the gospel, is, it's kind of for beginners. It's kind of baby stuff. If you really want to be an advanced believer, you also need to keep all of these commands. 
and they made up a few commands, but they also opened their Bibles and showed these new believers the law of Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, but all 600 or so Old Testament laws. And the Galatians started trying to obey all of these rules, and they got very religious, and as a result, their joy just evaporated. And Paul says, you guys are turning into joyless, weird, sour-faced, judgmental Christians. They kind of went from this to this. The church lady. Remember this when Dana Carvey used to do this on SNL? How many of you have ever known somebody was like one of the church ladies? Anybody here had, had, this, had her as a Sunday school teacher? How many of you have been the church lady in your life? Because I have been and was set free from this. And Paul's saying, uh, Galatians, let's try to turn, change this back into this, you know? And uh, maybe you are relating this and going, yeah, you know what? I- I've become a little bit sour, a little bit dour, a little serious. I'd like to get some of my joy back. Let's talk about it. Grab your message notes that look like this. The message for this week is titled, Guard Your Joy, as we're going verse by verse here through the book of Galatians. We did an overview, as I said, last weekend, and this weekend we start going through it section by section, verse by verse, and today we're in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And I love these first few verses of this epistle because the writer to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul, establishes the themes that he's going to elaborate on in the rest of the letter. And he starts off in verse 1 with this, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches, plural, in Galatia, all the churches in this region. And in these next two verses, Paul lays down the basics about the gospel that brings joy. And if you just understand what he's talking about here, you really will have joy. But we really need to kind of parse these words out, word for word, because the words Paul uses here sort of have what I call the Pledge of Allegiance factor. You know, as a little kid, you say the Pledge of Allegiance all the time, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, but you don't really understand what these words that you say all the time and hear all the time really mean, not the depth of their meaning. And that's kind of the same with the words that Paul uses here in the next few verses. We hear them a lot in church, but do we really explore, really plumb their depths? Like, look at this first word. He says, grace. And that is the theme of this whole letter. He uses this word again and again. So we better understand what grace means. Well, we could talk about this for a year's worth of sermons, but for today, let's just say it's the undeserved, transforming favor of God. The undeserved, transforming favor of God. And let me explain it this way. Recently, a book called Not by the Sword had the best example of grace I have heard about in a long time. It was about the unusual friendship between Rabbi Michael Weiser and his wife, Julie, and Larry Trapp. Larry was the grand dragon of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan of the state of Nebraska. And eventually, this KKK white supremacist and the rabbi and his wife developed a beautiful friendship. Now, of course, they didn't start out as friends. When Larry heard that this Jewish rabbi was moving to Lincoln, Nebraska, he organized a hate campaign. He called up all the neo-Nazis and skinheads and white supremacists and KKK people that he knew 
I guess they have some sort of directory or they're all on a speed dial or something. But he called them all up and he said, listen, we got to get this guy out of town. And he started phoning him up. And he started threatening the rabbi's life, threatening his synagogue, threatening to bomb his house. But because he was calling the rabbi, the rabbi had Larry's phone number. And so he looked at his wife, Julie, and, and, and Rabbi Michael said, well, well, what do you think I ought to do? And she said, I think you ought to call the police. And Rabbi Michael said, you know what? I'm going to try something else. I'm going to call him back. And Julie said, no, don't call him back. And Ra Rabbi Michael said, no, I, I think I'm going to call him. I got an idea. And he calls up Larry and he says, Larry, this is the rabbi. And, you know, I've heard that you were disabled, that you're confined to a wheelchair. And I was just wondering if you ever need a ride to the grocery store, you can call me because I'd be happy to give you a lift. And Larry pauses for a second, swears at the rabbi and says, I've got that taken care of. Thanks very much, you. Swears at him again. Racial epithet. Hangs up the phone. And his campaign is not hindered at all by the rabbi's show of grace. But the rabbi continues. And he decided that, like clockwork, at least once a week, he would call up the white supremacists and say, hey, this is the rabbi. I, I just want to tell you I love you. And if there, is there anything we can do for you? Because I'd, I'd be happy to do that. And every single time he just gets a swear word and the phone hangs up on him. Now, this goes on for months until one day uh, the rabbi asks Larry on his weekly phone call. He says, hey, hey, Larry, before you hang up, my wife and I would like to bring dinner over to you tonight. And Larry goes, whatever, you can do whatever you want and hangs up the phone again. And so that night, they brought over a beautiful dinner. And, and as they were cooking the dinner that afternoon, uh, the rabbi's wife, Julie, said, you know, I want to do something more than bring him just dinner. I just feel motivated to bring him a beautiful ring. I've heard he likes rings. I'm going to give him a beautiful silver ring. So she went to the jewelry store, bought a beautiful man's silver ring. And they brought over the dinner that night. Larry had his arms folded. And they walked into his house. And then the rabbi and his wife said, and we also want to bring you this, this ring. And what happened next? Well, here are the rabbi's own words. He says, as we walked in, I touched Larry's hand, and he burst into tears. He didn't know we were bringing the ring. He already had two swastika rings on, one on each hand. And what happened next, he took them off, and he said, I want you to take these rings because they symbolize hatred and evil and I just want them out of my life. What? He said, my wife Julie gave him the other ring and she put it on his finger. Now, what was the result of all this? Well, Larry ended up denouncing everything the Klan and the Nazi party stand for. He became a great friend of the Weisers, a regular attender at synagogue, absolutely, totally changed. And you know what? That's grace. It was undeserved, and it was transforming kindness and favor. And the Bible says, another rabbi did that for you and for me. Exactly that, actually to use Jesus Christ's own imagery from the parable of the prodigal son, he makes a feast for you. And he invites you to the banquet table and he puts a robe on your shoulders and a ring on your finger. He adopts you into his family, completely undeserved, 
completely transforming you by his grace and grace alone. Now, this is such a huge subject that as a church, we actually put together a book about it. It's called Grace Immersion. About four years ago, I think we did a series through this, and we have copies of this book available for you. It's like in its fourth printing now. It's in the lobby if you want to pick this up. Nobody makes any money from this. All the proceeds from this book just go right back to the general fund of this church. But if you want to explore this topic of grace more, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of Grace Immersion out in the lobby. But Paul doesn't stop there. He talks about grace, and then he says grace and peace. And Paul always puts these two phrases together at the beginning of every single one of his epistles. In fact, I double-checked this morning. I, I read the beginning of every single one of Paul's letters, and in every single one of them, he says, grace and peace. These two phrases were sort of his trademark. This was his message. Why? Because when you really get grace, it leads to peace. Peace, the confident, serene assurance that God loves me and that God cares for me. In fact, this is a really great way to kind of check your spirit to see if if dry, duty-bound, legalistic religion is sucking the joy out of your spirituality, if you have peace with God, then it's probably not. You know, you're getting grace. But if you're starting to feel uncomfortable in your relationship with God, if you're starting to feel guilty, uneasy, cowering, inadequate, searching desperately for some way to please God more, then your joy is being sucked dry by another gospel. You say, what are you talking about? I want want you to look at this. This was originally in a church bulletin. And uh, you might remember things like this from your own church bulletins when you were younger. But but look at this quiz. Can you see this? Quiz, check yourself. If people were like you, would they be in Sunday school next Sunday? Would they be on time? Would they bring a Bible? Would they have studied the lesson? Would they bring an offering? Would they attend the preaching service? And look at this next one. Would they make an effort to worship during it? I can't say that without doing Dana Carvey as the church lady. (laughs) Would they bring someone with them? Would they invite a new member or visitor? Now, look at this very carefully. Give yourself 10 points for every question that you could answer yes. If your score is 100, you're a perfect example. If 90, you're just about right. 80, you're slipping. 70, watch your step. 60, you're an emergency case. Six successful Sundays in Sunday school continues this Sunday. Be there. Now, just look at this for just a second. The very first time I ever showed this to a congregation for a sermon, a junior high kid came up to me after the sermon and pointed something out. He says, you know that quiz? He says, look at it again. There's no way to score 100. There's only nine questions. (laughs) And that is classic. That's legalism right there. They tell you what you're supposed to do to measure up And then they make it impossible. I mean, when you look at this, are are you feeling peace with God? Or are you feeling pressure from the pastor? You're probably feeling pressure from the pastor. That's not grace that leads to peace. Grace and peace. And listen, that is made only possible. It's not made possible by some sort of, you know, self-esteem course. It's made possible because of what Paul says next. Grace and peace, watch this. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Look at that awesome phrase, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Read that phrase with me. 
Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Man, that is beautiful. First, it says he gave himself. That means our salvation is a gift. And second, it says to rescue us. You know, something Tim Keller points out here. He says, look at how Paul, when he's digesting the ministry of Christ, how he describes it as a rescue operation. Now, don't miss this, because in every other religion, the founders of those religions are there to teach us, to to teach often very good things. But when Paul digests the point of the ministry of Christ, he doesn't even call Jesus a teacher. He says he's a rescuer. Why? When someone is in dire need of rescue, the last thing they need is to be taught. That's not going to do them any good. They need rescue. You know, if you see a drowning woman in the ocean here, are you going to run to the shore and throw in a manual on how to swim? Here! You know, there's great instruction on page 20. That's not going to help. What she needs is rescue. That's what's implied here in this verse. We were lost in need of rescue. Somebody once said, the gospel teaches us that we are more lost than we could ever imagine, yet more loved than we would ever dare hope. I love this. We've been rescued by Jesus, and Paul says this was according to the will of our God and Father. God saves me by his will. He saves me because he wants to. It's a transaction he initiated and he completes. And here's why this is so important for your grace and for your peace. Put it this way. What would you do if cars could talk? And this morning you went outside to Adrian Moreno's car. And you said, hey, how's it feel to be Adrian's car? And Adrian's car said to you, well, you know, I'm trying very hard to be Adrian's car. One day, if I'm a good enough car, I hope to be Adrian's car. But I don't know if I can, if I really can say I'm Adrian's car right now. But I, but I hope I'm worthy of being Adrian's car one day. You'd probably say something like, well, for a car that can talk, you're actually surprisingly stupid. Because here's the way that works. You're Adrian's car already. Uh, Whether or not you're Adrian's car has nothing to do with you, car. You became Adrian's car when Adrian bought you. When Adrian signed, you know, the slip indicating ownership, you became his car. That's a settled issue. Adrian is the purchasing agent, not you. He bought you, and he paid the price for you already. And see, that's how it is with you and me and our salvation. God's the purchasing agent, not you. It was according to his will and his power and his grace and his mercy, case closed. And he did this for his glory. God did this all to show his power and goodness in me. He does it all to show what a loving and powerful God he is, not what great people we are. And again, this brings such peace. It's kind of like this. The AT&T is coming up, the big golf tournament. Uh, down in Monterey. And uh, let's just say that you went down there to watch the AT&T and you saw some amazing golfer just tee off on a ball and it went, you know, hundreds of yards out to the farthest green and hit the green and it rolled straight for the cup and plunked right down in there for a hole in one. Now, would you and all the spectators watching that ball say, what a great golf ball. Man, that golf ball did a great job at that hole in one. It's a phenomenal golf ball. That that should be enshrined. It's legendary. 
I want that ball. No, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't even think about the golf ball. You'd say, what a great golfer. What a great shot that golfer hit. And see, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that everything God does for us is not about us. It's about him. It's not about bringing us glory. It's about bringing him glory. God's the one who tees off on us and sends us sailing as a hole in one. And it's for people to praise him and go, what an amazing God he is that he could work even through somebody like Renee, even through somebody like you. Do you see what performance pressure this takes off your shoulders? Because it's not about you impressing other people. It's not about you impressing other people even with your holiness. It's just about you being you, being regenerated and changed and sanctified by God incrementally over your whole life so the people go, wow, God is so good. Now, if you try to put on airs and pretend you're something more than, than, than you really are and try to pretend you're perfect, that does not glorify God. But if you're just you and you're transparent about all of your struggles and about your, your doubts and about your certainties, then people are going to go, man, that God can work through somebody like that, and then God is glorified. You don't have, that means you don't have to hide anything about yourself because it's all about the golfer, not the golf ball. Now, when you look back at these first few verses, I want us just to sit here for just, just a little while because Paul's about to turn a corner for really the rest of the epistle and critique the Galatians and go, but you've abandoned this amazing gospel. But before he does that, I want us to just dwell on the beauty of the grace that he's just described. And I, and I felt like it would be appropriate to just take a break to just worship. I asked Trent to return so we can sing a song about what Paul has just been talking about. And this is a song that historians say is the most widely known song in the English language. It was written by a man who'd been captain of a slave transport boat. He picked up kidnapped men, women, children from places like Gori Island in Senegal and brought them from Africa to slave markets in the New World. His boats were so crowded with captured humanity that many people died on the voyage and he could have cared less. He had a reputation for being the most vile man at sea in an occupation of many heartless men. He actually took joy in leading young Christian sailors away from their faith and into immorality. But one night during a storm when he feared for his own life, he promised God that if he survived, he'd go to church. One of those foxhole promises. Well, he did and eventually became a Christian and even became a pastor and wrote many pamphlets, little booklets against the slave trade that he was once a part of and never became tired of being amazed that God would use someone like him. And he eventually wrote about it in a song that he called Faith's Review and Expectation, but you know it as Amazing Grace. So let's sing a version of that song by John Newton and just feel the emotion when he wrote Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. And think about how God saved you too. My chains are gone I've been set free My God, my Savior has ransomed me 
His mercy reigns unending love, amazing Sometimes you just are moved to tears, just astonishment about God and about how much He loves you, just absolutely infinitely, about how, how there's nothing we bring to God for our salvation except for our need. That's it. And He just goes, I love you, and tees off on you and does amazing things in your life. And so you see how Paul sets into motion these huge themes, and you're going to see these reverberating all throughout the book of Galatians. So exciting. And then he rockets right out of the gate with this next kind of turn of phrase. There was this problem in Galatia. And so Paul is cutting right to the chase here, and he says kind of, but, he's described this grace, but I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And what Paul does next on page two of your notes, and I'll hit these three points very quickly because you'll hear them all throughout this book, is he sets up three themes. And these are three characteristics of joyless, joy-draining religious systems. And what he's saying to the Galatians is, you know, you've gotten very religious here, but, but in your religion, you've completely forgotten the gospel. 
And these are very important for us to know, too, because we can have our joy drained by these same things. So be on guard. These are so common. And the first one is what, what I call Christ plus teaching. Christ plus instead of Christ alone. And this can be very, very subtle. People implying in some way or another, well, you might have Christ, but you also need this to be a really good Christian, this spiritual experience or this spiritual gift or this, you have to go on this diet to really get to the next elite level or you have to believe this new revelation, this new gospel or you have to make this commitment. Man, this is so dangerous. Paul says, verse 7, evidently, Some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Last weekend, we saw that the word he used here for pervert literally means reverse. They're reversing the gospel because the real gospel is all about God to you, God lavishing his grace on you. And they're reversing that order and making it about you to God, about all the things that you're doing for God to earn his blessing. And so they're confusing the Galatians. They're sending them all kinds of mixed messages. And we hear mixed messages too in in any church, any church. You can hear these sorts of mixed messages. In fact, flip your notes over to page three there. Do you see the daily meditations? Well, I put in one of the daily meditations some common mixed messages about the gospel. Things like, God loves you unconditionally, so be sure you keep all the conditions. And here they are. Jesus paid your debt in full, but now you've got to stay paid up to Jesus by doing good works. God loves everyone equally, but some people are more loved than others because they're more obedient. These are crazy-making, mixed messages that confuse people, but they are so common that everybody really believes them. In fact, let me ask you, when people think of Christianity today, I mean, people just sort of in society... Do they think of what we believe primarily as God's unconditional love available by grace and grace alone through Jesus Christ? Or do they think that we probably believe something like this? You accept Christ and then you try really hard to keep this list of do's and don'ts and try to earn God's grace that way. They suspect that latter thing is what we believe. And that's exactly what has Paul so fired up. And by the way, if you think you've seen Paul fired up here already, look at how fired up he gets under number two, the second characteristic of a joy-stealing religion, an overemphasis on authority, sort of this hyper-authoritarianism. And Paul talks about this a lot in the book of Galatians, saying, you can't contradict me. I'm the leader here. I'm the pastor. So thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. Do not question what I tell you. Paul says in verse 8, if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Verse 9, as we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Whoa. Here you, you kind of feel like, Paul, uh, you've repeated this a, a couple of times, and, and you're so passionate that, that you're tempted to go, Paul, lighten up, man, you know? It's only doctrine. Uh, stop getting so upset. It's not like the Galatians have devolved into, into sin or something. They're religious people. These days we're taught in our society, kind of, it doesn't matter what religious doctrine you believe. It's all the same. The very idea of talking about false doctrine and And, you know, heretics, how medieval that is. But you have to understand where Paul's coming from. Why focus so much on doctrine? Well, 
because bad doctrine leads to bad results. Like, as in really bad, bad things. Let me ask you, why did the Nazis kill millions of Jews? Why did they do that? You say, well, they were, they were evil. Yes, but, but probably one of them didn't suddenly say to the rest, hey, guys, you want to do something really evil? You know, that's not why they did it. They did it because of what they believed. They believed that some racial groups, some ethnicities were subhuman and needed to be eradicated. And in fact, for them, this was a specifically religious belief. They even called it a doctrine. Now, Paul says the opposite. Paul says there's no Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free. We're all one in Jesus Christ. And if you have that view of human dignity, you know what? It's based on really a biblical worldview. It's a religious belief. It's a doctrine. And when you change your doctrine, when you change your beliefs, they can, that can lead eventually to some really terrible things. And if you change your doctrine from grace to grace plus a little bit of paying attention to your you know, leader unquestioningly and doing all the rules that they teach you to do, if you morph the gospel into that, it can lead to hundreds of people drinking poison Kool-Aid in Jonestown, Guyana. It can lead to uh, you know, little children picketing funerals of AIDS victims with signs that are hateful toward homosexuals. It can lead to millions and millions of Christians losing their joy from a grace-oriented religion to a legalistic religion. And that is why Paul is so fired up. And did you notice, apparently these teachers are claiming some kind of angelic authority. I I think that's why Paul mentions angels, because otherwise that kind of is out of the blue. And still today, if you trace back cults and cult leaders, they usually claim some kind of extra special supernatural authority. They might call it an anointing, or maybe they receive visions, or they hear from angels. I've heard all of that. Or they say that they have special gifts, special supernatural gifts of discernment. And what's so clever here about Paul is he doesn't argue that. He doesn't say, they did not see an angel. He says, listen, if some angel or some vision or some person, or even if I teach you something that is different than the gospel, then do not listen to them. It's interesting. Paul says, even if I do this, Paul never pulls rank. Paul never says, accept my authority without question, not their authority. He's saying, pay attention to the message, not the messenger. And if the messenger gets the message wrong, then you got to go back to the real gospel. And listen, how does this apply to you? If you are ever in a church, even this church, where the leaders claim some kind of authority that's so special that you can't question it, follow me because I have extra special insight or anointing or gift, run. Why? Because that becomes a closed system. Because you can't criticize a guy like that anymore. You know, that's tantamount to criticizing God. You're not allowed to really gauge their teaching by the Bible because they shut you down with their trump card of special authority. Pastor, that doesn't quite sound right. Trump card, but I have a special anointing. Don't you dare question me. So scary. And pretty soon people just put their minds on hold and just take their pastor's advice on everything. Watch out 
when leaders start to be sort of hyper-authoritarianism. Does that make sense? And I am telling you this because I saw it in a vision, so don't question me. <laughs> All right, final characteristic of joy-stealing religion, it's performance pressure. You feel pressure to perform, to gain the approval of these extra special teachers. You become a people pleaser, Paul says, not me. He says in verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He says three times in one verse, he doesn't worry about people pleasing. Why not? Grace. He knows he's accepted by God. And so he can live for an audience of one, his loving Heavenly Father. What about you? Are you a people pleaser? What slavery that can be. It leads to hypocrisy. It leads to sin because you can't be candid about it. It stunts your spiritual growth. Even God couldn't please everybody, so don't try to do something that God couldn't do. Don't be a people pleaser. Don't even worry about pleasing me, you know? Live for an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves you unconditionally and completely because what happens is his love changes you from the inside out, as we're going to see in the weeks to come in the book of Galatians. So let's wrap it up with this, the key phrase. Back in verse 6, Paul says, God calls you to live in the grace of Christ. Do you understand how huge this little sentence is? Live in the grace of Christ. He's saying you don't just start with grace. You live in it. He's saying the gospel is not just the ABCs of the spiritual life. You know, it's very common in Christian circles to think of the gospel as something mainly for non-Christians. The gospel, that's the ABCs. You need to know how to accept Christ, but once I'm converted, I don't need to keep hearing the gospel. I need more advanced material, more meat. But in Galatians, Paul says the gospel is not just the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's everything. It's all you need. So as we move into communion, dwell on, soak yourself in the grace of God. Ask yourself, am I experiencing the peace that comes from understanding grace? Think about that as we prepare our hearts for communion together. Would you pray with me? With our heads bowed, I just want you to ask yourself, am I settled as far as my relationship with God? Do I know for sure that God loves me with his undeserved yet transforming favor? Am I secure? Do I have assurance? If not, this is a chance for you to settle the issue right now. Pray, Lord, thank you so much for your grace. And today, for the first time or, or, the, or the thousandth time, I say, thank you that I receive from you grace that leads to peace because Jesus Christ gave himself to rescue us according to the will of God the Father. God, I just receive that grace today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Help me to grow in my understanding of that. In Jesus' name, amen.